Uh, Well, as we open up God's word together, let's uh, just uh, commit this time to him in prayer. Precious God, we want to thank you that uh, we have your word to us, that it is a living word, and that this morning as we open it together, as we uh, hear from it, as we study it together, Lord, help us to remember that, uh, Lord, we're not just here just to uh, hear a person preach a message from a pulpit, but rather, Lord, we want to humble ourselves before you. We want to submit every aspect of our lives to you today. And we want to have hearts and ears that are open to what you, the living God, might want to say to us through your word. We pray that through your word today, you might continue to renew our minds, transform our hearts and our lives more and more into the image of Christ, who is our glory, for we ask it in his name. Amen. You know, I don't think anyone likes to be characterised as weak, do they? In fact, to be called weak today is probably considered to be more of an insult than anything in our culture. And I think that uh, when it comes down to it, no one really in their right mind would actually really even would, would go about boasting about their weaknesses, would they? But instead, what we'd rather do is actually try to hide them. We try to, uh, you know, sort of paint over all this nice glossy picture of ourselves through different facades and things like that in order to, uh, you know, to, uh, pro- you know, sort of proclaim to the outside world or, you know, sort of um, um, project to the outside world that, you know, we're doing okay. We put on all kinds of facades to say that, you know, we're doing really good and we're in control and everything's fine in my life, thank you very much. Because after all, when it comes down to it, you know, image really is what we judge one another on. And we don't want people to look down on us, but rather we would rather have people look up to us. And so, you know, people look down on those who are weak. And so we'd rather hide those weaknesses and keep them hidden deep inside us. Now, in the Corinthian church, there was a group of people who had come in amongst the, uh, the church and they were seeking to gain the approval and the following of, of the believers in that particular church at that time. And they sought to, to puff themselves up by boasting about, uh, you know, about their religious heritage and their so-called super-spirituality. They tried to convince these Corinthian believers that the, that the Apostle Paul the one who was in fact commissioned by God and, and, uh, and, uh, and called by God, that he himself was actually inferior to them and to their ministry, that, that they, they cast aspersions on, on Paul's ministry and they started to, uh, to run him down and they resorted to character assassination and, and, uh, and you know, looked to, uh, to mock him and his ministry. And as they did this, they were gaining more and more of a following of the people in the Corinthian church. And Paul was, was outraged by this, not, be, not for his own sake. I mean, he really couldn't care less what they thought of him, but he was more concerned about the Corinthian believers, about their spiritual well-being and about the, the honour and the glory of Christ and the truth of his word, the, the truth of his gospel. And so as these false teachers were gaining influence and, and, and turning pe- these people away, Paul sort of create, you know, brings about this, this argument and he sort of starts to uh, engage in the kind of stuff that they were doing. 
If you go back just a minute to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, just in the page previously, we see the impact that these, uh, these um, so-called super-spiritual, super-apostles, as Paul calls them, in this, uh, in this chapter, in chapter 11, we see what kind of influence they were having in the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, reading from, from verse 2, he says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, speaking of God, of course, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. We see that here these people they were preaching a, a, a false gospel. They were preaching a false Jesus. They were prone to puff themselves up and make themselves look good instead of glorifying Christ. And, and there was, he was leading these, the, the people of Corinth, the, the believers in Corinth, into a, a wrong understanding of the faith. And Paul was angry. He was outraged about that. He had this divine jealousy, the same jealousy that God has for his people, the same kind of jealousy that a husband has for his wife in terms of you know, wanting to protect them and, and, you know, and have them for themselves, not from a selfish point of view, but because of that relationship. Now, Paul was never one to blow his own trumpet. Because his sole purpose and mission was, in fact, to see Christ exalted in the hearts and the lives of other people. But in order to try to get the Corinthian believers to sort of understand and sort of see what was going on, he kind of, he reluctantly engages in what might be called a, a bit of a boasting contest, if you like. But his boasting takes on a lot different character to what their boasting does. And he begins this kind of boasting contest, if you like, in chapter 10 of his letter. And, and it continues through chapter 11. All the while, Paul is pointing out how foolish a thing that he thought this was. If you go back to chapter 10 for a moment, in chapter 10, verses 17 to 18. Paul says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Paul says, let us boast in the Lord. In, 11, in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. He's going to start this, this whole boasting. And he says, you know, this is foolish stuff. In chapter, in, verse, in chapter 11, verse 17, Paul says, what am I saying with this boastful confidence? I, may, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool, he says. In verse 21 and uh, 20, 20 to 23 of, of uh, chapter 11, he says this. He says, But ever, whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. But I'm talking like a madman. Paul is reluctantly engaging in this whole boasting to sort of try to get the, uh, the ear of the Corinthian believers and to see how this boasting of oneself is completely and utterly foolish. And there is something more to be boasted, to be boasted of in a, in a believer's life. At the end of chapter 11, Paul makes this incredible statement. He says, if I must boast, 
then I will boast of the things that will show my weakness. And at the end of chapter 11, Paul goes through this incredible list of, of all the hardships that he's endured for the ministry of the gospel. And, uh, and he, he, uh, he talks about you know, the beatings and the scourgings and the, uh, you know, the uh, in danger from rivers and danger from robbers and things like that. He just goes on and on with this incredible list and he ends it with this, uh, this humiliating account of having to be lowered out of a window in the wall of this city in a basket to, to escape his, his opponents. He had to flee for his life. It was kind of like this picture of running with his tail between his legs kind of thing and this humiliating picture of himself. Well, the false teachers were quick to pick up on all these sorts of things about Paul and his ministry. And they saw and they viewed these hardships and humiliations as evidence that Paul was a fake. That he could not possibly be an apostle of God because God wasn't blessing him. They were convinced that God's blessings were, were associated more with favourable circumstances rather than hardships and trials and difficulties. But folks, that's false theology. It's foolish thinking. But yet how often do we think this way? Now when things go wrong in our lives, we can automatically think that, uh, oh, what have we done wrong towards God that God might be, you know, punishing us because of these things that are going wrong in our lives? How often do those thoughts quickly come to our minds when hardships strike? But on the flip side, when things are going well, we can also be lulled into a false sense of security that, that God is pleased with us. When the reality is that nothing could be further from the truth. Well, it appears from the text here in chapter 12 that one of the ways that these false apostles were gaining the approval of the Corinthian believers was because of these visions and revelations that they were boasting of. Grand and, in, and impressive mystical experiences that they were having and they were, they were telling the Corinthian believers about. And so Paul recounts an experience that he was given, though he sees nothing to be gained from it. We see that in the beginning of chapter 12 where he says, Well, I must go on boasting then. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. There is nothing to be gained by it, he says. Paul recounts this experience and he speaks here in the third person. He says, I know a man. I know a man in Christ." Who is Paul speaking about? Is he speaking about someone else or himself? Well, in actual fact, he's speaking about himself, which will become clear in verse 7 when he says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of, these, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. So Paul is speaking of himself here. So why does he speak in third person? I think it's because, that again, he, does not, he, he doesn't want to puff himself up. He doesn't want to make himself look great. He doesn't want to you know, bring the glory and all the honour to him, but he still continues to want to deflect it to Christ. He speaks of this, in, uh, this occasion 14 years earlier, before he even went, began his missionary journeys around, the, uh, around Asia Minor there. 14 years earlier, he says, he was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows. 
and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Paul is speaking here of an experience in his life 14 years previously where God had, had, had caught him up, had, had brought him up into the very presence of himself, there into the, what's called the third heaven, a paradise. You know, the, the, the biblical kind of construct of, of heaven was a, was a threefold heaven in some, in some instances where uh, the, the first heaven was kind of like the atmosphere of the, of the, of the world as we know it, the sky and, and our atmosphere. The second heaven was the universe where we see the stars and the planets and things like that. And then the third heaven was the, was the abode of God. Paul was brought into the presence of God. What an incredible experience this must have been. And he says that when he's there in the presence of God, he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. In other words, Paul heard these things there in God's presence, but God had obviously said to him, you cannot tell anyone about this. He was, he was prohibited from saying anything about what he heard there in heaven with God. There are a few things that we need to note about this experience of Paul. The first is this, that it appears that this was not a usual thing for Paul in his life. That it was a rare experience. Paul says it happened 14 years ago. In fact, the only other, uh, the only other uh, um, uh, revelation that Paul speaks about, very much so in terms of this this. Um, Connection with Christ is, is his conversion experience on the Damascus Road where, he, where Christ appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? As at that stage, Paul, with the unconverted Paul, was going around and trying to actually destroy the church, carting Christians into jail and, and having them killed. Of that particular event, Paul actually speaks of it numerous times through his, through, his, uh, through his letters because it shows the glory of Christ and the grace of Christ poured out into his life, this incredible sinner who was trying to destroy Christ and his church, how the grace of Christ, gained, the grace of Christ came to him and actually helped him to see his need for Christ, to help him see that he needed his sins forgiven. And he needed to be set right with God. So it was a rare experience. Second point we need to understand is that Paul was given this incredible experience, this ecstatic experience by God. There was nothing that Paul was able to do to bring this about himself. There was no kind of rituals to go through, no kind of formulas and that sort of thing to practice in order to be able to you know, conjure up this kind of experience. It was, a, it was initiated completely and utterly by God and God alone. And thirdly, it was expressly for Paul's own benefit. No one else's. Because Paul was not allowed to speak about it, what he heard there in heaven with God. It's interesting, you know, the Corinthian believers, they had this fascination with the ecstatic gifts, you know, the gifts of speaking in tongues and prophecy and things like that. Read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You can go and have a look at that for yourself a bit later on. But, you know, for Paul, as he sort of, you know, speaks about this to the Corinthian church back in that chapter, he says that much of this is merely for personal spiritual communion with God. 
It has nothing to contribute to the building up of the body of Christ. Paul considered that the only thing that was helpful was that which, was, which, which really helped to build up the body into unity and maturity in the faith. That was what Paul saw as, as being helpful when it came to these kind of experiences. And Paul goes on to say that you know he's he's had this incredible revelation, and he says, "On behalf of this man, I will, sorry, on behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth." So Paul is saying, you know, this this actually took place in my life. You know, I can I can truthfully, you know, witness to this and give testimony about this particular experience. But you know what? It's really, you know, when in the big scheme of things, it is really superficial. Because I would rather boast about my weaknesses rather than these grand kind of ecstatic experiences, these spiritual experiences. I would rather boast of Christ than of myself. He says, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Don't think that I'm any, anyone special, Paul is saying. But instead, look at, look at how God works in my life and through my life and the ministry that I carry out on his behalf for his glory. Look at those things instead and see God at work in the midst of that. See God behind it all. And give praise and honour and glory to him. Well, he goes on to say that, you know, when it comes to our humanness, our weakness, that, uh, you know, we can sometimes sort of say these things, but when it comes to the reality, it's, it's hard to put them into practice, isn't it? Paul says that, uh, you know, to uh, prevent him from becoming proud or superior, you know, feeling superior in any way or conceited, as our passage tells us today, it says that he was given a thorn in the flesh to harass or torment him in verse 7. And he refers to this thorn in the flesh as a messenger from Satan. Although God clearly allowed this to happen. Because we'll see that Paul very much makes it clear that it was given to him for a specific purpose. So what are we to make of this? What are we to make of this thorn in the flesh of the Paul experienced? And whether or not it came from God or whether it came from Satan. And and if it came from God, then then what what kind of a God actually would do that to someone? Would, Would give them a thorn in the flesh? Isn't God a compassionate and merciful and loving God? What kind of a God, you know, treats his, his own children like this? Let me say simply this, that what we see here is we see an attempt by Satan, first and foremost, to try and wreck Paul's ministry by any means. Paul had been called by God and he had a ministry of going and proclaiming the gospel. And he was anointed by God to to do that, to be this apostle for Christ. And Satan wanted to to use any kind of opposition, both physical and spiritual. And it seems here that he inflicted Paul with some kind of ailment in order to restrict or to prevent him from carrying out this ministry for God and seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ. 
Yet although Satan was at work, God, who is far more powerful than Satan, would use Satan's own devices and his own schemes to demonstrate his own power and his own majesty and his own grace in Paul's life. But yes, Satan may have given him this thorn in the flesh, but God was actually going to completely flip that around and turn it on its head and actually use that as a means of showing to the world through Paul God's amazing grace and his power in enabling Paul to actually overcome this thorn in the flesh and actually be used by God to see so many people come to a saving faith in Christ. Of course, we see something similar in the crucifixion of Christ, don't we? When Satan, who was seeking to destroy Christ and his ministry, he used the plotting and he used the the actions of sinful men in order to try to to kill Christ and and to uh, to, to prevent his ministry from, from, from going any further. But all along, God's plan was to use this as, again, a means of demonstrating his power and ultimate victory over Satan and over sin and over death and over evil. Let me, tell, let me just read to you just a couple of verses from Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. When it says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God... You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But here is where we see the power of God. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. But Satan's plan was to get rid of Jesus was to have him killed, crucified. Crucifixion was, a, was the most shameful kind of horrific death that anyone could experience in that kind of culture at that particular time in history. In fact, anyone who was seen as to be hung on a cross was considered to be the, the worst of the worst, this criminal. This, it was a, a, an incredibly shameful kind of, of, of execution. And Satan would thought that you know, people would, would see Christ there hanging on the cross and think, no way in the world that he could be God. And yet God had planned right from the very beginning of before creation that this would be his purpose, but that he would use the purposes of, of Satan and, and man and, and, and you know, evil men in order to carry out his own purposes. God was superintending all of that. That's the kind of God we worship today, folks. That's the God whom we call our Heavenly Father, who, yes, he loves us, but he will use all of the the, the schemes and the plottings of, of man and that sort of thing and of Satan. Even in this world today, he will use all of those things. Although they're all against him, he can use those things and completely turn the tables and use them to show his power and his grace and his majesty and his glory through them. Of course, God's purpose in this thorn was to prevent Paul from becoming puffed up in his own importance and to keep him dependent upon God and God's power and grace. And Paul was going to need that. When you read through that stuff that Paul went through in his life, all of those horrific things that he endured for the gospel, he was going to need God more than anything. Paul didn't like the thorn. 
He didn't, he didn't want to embrace it. In fact, he prayed three times that God would take it away. He said, he says in verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. God, I don't want to go through this. I don't want to have this. I don't want to have to, I don't want to, have to you know, suffer the, the pain and the hardship and the trial that this thorn has brought you know, into my life. You know, the things that, that it will, you know, will you know, sort of try to harass me in as, as, a, as I proclaim the ministry for you. I don't want it, God. Take it away. God in his wisdom and providence assured Paul that despite the weakness and the incapacity that the thorn would cause him, God's grace would enable him to not only endure it and to bear it, but to also have victory over it. And that through this particular instance of Paul's weakness and through all of Paul's weaknesses, God says that, Paul, I have a grander purpose and that as you, you, know, as you go through this and as you rely on me and as my grace and my power works in you and through you, I am going to perfect you and I am going to strengthen you and I am going to mould you and shape you more and more into the character of Christ. And that itself is going to be this incredible witness and this incredible demonstration to all those around about you of the truth of who I am and what I am able to do in and through a person's life. My grace, Paul, is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. That's why Paul goes on to say in verse 9, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, How do we feel about our weaknesses? Are we ready to boast all the more gladly in those that Christ's power may rest on us? You know, this, the language in, 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 our, uh, in our Bibles doesn't pick this up, but the, the, that word rest that is used there, where Christ's power may rest on me, is actually the same word that, that is used to speak of Christ actually coming to, to dwell amongst us as a people. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, it says that, uh, that the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. He came and he pitched his tent, he tabernacled, he pitched his tent with us. This close association with us, this, this drawing near to us, this being with us in the everyday aspects of our life. That's what Paul is saying here. The Christ power may come and, and dwell with us. It's spoken of here, it's spoken also in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 3 where it says at the, you know, at the end of time it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. God dwelling. Paul knew that the greatest demonstration of God's truth, of his grace and of his power is shown most wonderfully in the life of a humble disciple. 
a humble follower of God who is willing to admit his or her own weaknesses. Verse 10, Paul says then that he is content. In fact, he literally delights with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities, not for their own sake, Folks, there's no transformative power in, uh, you know, in, in hardships and weaknesses and trials and things like that in and of themselves. But the power comes as we depend upon Christ and as we look to him and as we allow his power to work in us and through us and transform those things into incredible, wonderful testimonies of, the, of, of God's grace and truth. As I said, Paul's life was all about serving Jesus Christ. And when the buffeting and the bruising of life's storms come and the trials hit, Paul had this amazing, you know, unshaking confidence in God, in the grace and power of God. An assurance first and foremost of God's abiding presence with him in the midst of it. That God had in fact come and pitched his tent with Paul there in the midst of his weaknesses and all of the hardships that he endured. He didn't go through them alone. Secondly, he gained a closer experience of God's comfort and love that he would not have had in any other way, shape or form. And thirdly, he had a guarantee that God would use these particular circumstances and situations, Paul's weaknesses for his glory. So let me ask you this this morning. What do you boast in? What do you boast in? Are you trying to live life all in your own strength? Thinking that, you know, I've got this, I've, I've got this. It's all good. And yeah, there can be some hard times, but I'll just, you know, stiff up a lip and that sort of stuff. And, you know, what is it, back to the, back to the uh, wheel or uh, nose to the grindstone or whatever you want to call it. And I'll just tough it out. Do you live that way because you're afraid of showing your weakness to those around you? I think we can all be tempted to do that, can't we? We can all be fearful of exposing ourselves, of being vulnerable to those people around about us, of allowing those weaknesses to come through, thinking that people will feel so less of us and therefore our own kind of self-worth and self-value goes, you know, kind of plummets. But can I say that if that's, if that's your approach, if that's your thinking to life and to living for God, can I say that in doing this, in trying to sort of you know, present your own kind of strength and your own kind of power and that sort of thing through weakness, in fact, trying to hide your weakness, that you actually may be a hindrance to the gospel and to the power of God. Think about that for a moment. We wouldn't want to be those people, would we? We don't want to be a hindrance to God working in us and through us. 
Yet the more we try to hide our weaknesses, the more we try to cover them over, the more we try to hide them from people around about us and, and, pro, and sort of pro, you know, project to those around us that, hey, we, we're doing okay, we, we're doing fine, you may actually be a hindrance to the work of God that God wants to do in you and through you and to testify to those people in your circles of influence. Something to think about, isn't it? Perhaps at this moment, though, that you're going through some of these really deep waters. That life has certainly thrown you a curveball. That your world has been turned upside down. As we look at a passage like this this morning, we can find encouragement. And we can find hope in the midst of that. We can find encouragement because God knows your situation right now. And as you look to him and as you rely on him and as you, as you, as you seek to, to press in closer to him, you can be assured that God has come and pitched his tent with yours. But our God is a powerful God and our God is, his power is beyond anything that any kind of power that can come against us as opposition, God's power is much greater than that. And God's power can work in you right today. In the midst of your weakness, in the midst of the situation you find yourself in now, God's power can bear you up. And it can get you through. And it can bring you through and to the other side and you're going to be able to look back and see, wow, wasn't God amazing? But in the midst of it, as God you know, sustains you and enables you, as you look to him, God is going to shine his grace through your life to those around about, us, those around about you. So people can say, wow, that has got to be testimony to the power of God in that person's life. How they respond to this weakness, how they respond to this hardship, how they respond to this, this most difficult of trials, how they respond to this darkest of places as they continue to look to God and have faith and trust in him. It is an incredible incredible testimony to those people around about us of God's grace and God's power. Isn't that a wonderful thing to be able to be a part of? That God might use us in that situation, even in the midst of our our weaknesses, even when we feel as though we've got nothing, absolutely nothing, God says, in your weakness, my power is made perfect. So can I just leave you with this? Please, don't try to hide your weaknesses. This is not me saying this, folks. This is God saying this to us today. As his people here in this place, don't hide your weaknesses. 
Don't think that weakness is a sign of, of, of people just to be able to walk over you and tread all over you and all that sort of stuff. In fact, God says, you know what? I can take that weakness. I can turn it completely around and I can show you that I am the God who is able to sustain you and uphold you and bring you through and shine my glory through you. Secondly, Please do not use your weaknesses as an excuse not to to be available for God to use and not to actually sort of step into areas where you think, you know what, I can't do this because I'm weak. I can't do that because I don't have the the ability. I I, I can't do this. I can't do that because of my weaknesses, my own frailties, my own inabilities and things like that. But instead, look to God who has got more power than you could ever imagine and he wants to use that power in your life today and through these days ahead. So don't think of weaknesses as as an inability, but think of it as a means by which God can use you. And that God may be wanting to use your situation right now to actually speak to other people in your life. Now think of people like Johnny Erickson, Tata. Some of you might know her. What if she had seen her weaknesses and her incapabilities and things like that and thought, well, that's it. I'm written off. I've got nothing. I'm a paralyzed teenage girl with a lot of anger, a lot of bitterness and a lot of hurt. She's written many books. She's just written this one. When God weeps. When God weeps. After more than 30 years in a wheelchair, Johnny Erickson Tata's intimate experience with suffering gives her a special understanding of God's intentions for us in our pain. In this book, When God Weeps, she, with lifelong friend Stephen Estes, probes beyond the glib answers that fail us in our time of deepest need. But instead, with firmness and compassion, they reveal a God big enough to understand our suffering, wise enough to allow it, and powerful enough to use it for a greater good than we can ever imagine. Don't be in a hurry to get rid of hardship. Yeah, it's going to be unpleasant. And it's going to be hard. And there are going to be days where you think, I can't do this. But it's in those days that if we draw near to God, you will experience the grace and power of God in such a unique and special way that you couldn't in any other circumstance in your life. And so with God and with Paul, we can always say, when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you this morning for your word to us. Lord, we do. You know, our human nature wants us to sort of try to hide our weaknesses. We think of them as, as negatives in our lives. We think of them as, you know, the opportunities for people to look down upon us. You know, we see them contributing to a lack of self-esteem and self-worth and things like that. And yet we've seen in this passage today what you're able to do in us and through us in spite of our weaknesses. So we pray that as we go forward from this day on that we would be people who would be like the Apostle Paul, happy to say that I will boast all the more in my weaknesses 
so that God's power may rest upon me. Amen.